Well, let's stand together as we come now to the Bible, Ecclesiastes chapter 4 through 6. Don't worry, I'm not going to read the whole thing. We're just going to read from chapter 5, 1 to 7. You'll find it on page 555, and that's going to be the focus this morning, those seven verses. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, page 555 in the Pew Bible. Let's pray as we come now to the Bible. Father, thank you for your word, and uh, I want to pray particularly this morning that you would help us not only to understand the Bible, but to hear your message for us. And we pray this uh, relying upon the Holy Spirit and in Jesus' name, amen. So friends, Ecclesiastes 5, beginning at verse 1, and I'll read to verse 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Do please sit down. God is the one we must fear or stand in awe of. Awesome worship is the craving of many a church hopper these days, or church shopper. Can't say I blame them. I don't know how you feel about that, but even for me, going to church services can sometimes feel about as exciting as watching paint dry, or if you are an American, watching cricket. (laughs) After all, Surely if it is God that we're talking about, God we are worshipping, you know, the one who made everything, who knows everything, who can do anything, then the worship experience should at least be interesting. Uh, To coin a phrase, looking at this uh, last few words here in Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 7, the fear of God, many people want frighteningly good worship. That's understandable. The trouble comes with the kind of pressure this is exerting on the contemporary Christian church. As a Charlie Brown cartoon that I once saw said, you can't get anybody to believe in you these days. And so churches are reacting, some of them, by adopting the secularized advertising techniques or marketing feel or the moral or spiritual equivalent of a campaign or a gig 
or if you're really intellectual, a scintillating conference. And so preachers, uh, people like me, look and sound more like talk show hosts than prophets. And if there is any profit in mind, it's purely the bottom line of the spreadsheet, you wonder cynically. Now, in his brutally honest exposure of the futility of modern secular life, Ecclesiastes has already touched on many themes, on many different issues. So he's talked, hasn't he, as we've looked at it together, about that Monday morning feeling, the sense that this rat race is going nowhere, that work is like playing a, a basketball game with no basketball hoops. It's, there's no goal, there's no end, no purpose to it. And he's exposed all that is meaningless, a race with no gain in the end. On the other hand, he's also exposed the even greater folly of pure laziness. Uh, Jerome K. Jerome, in his book, Three Men in a Boat, wrote, I like work. It fascinates me. I can sit and look at it for hours. Uh, Ecclesiastes counsels us not to be lazy. Look at the unemployment lines and see whether there is happiness or the Occupy movement. But instead, enjoy what is before you, whatever the work of your hands may be, your life, your partner. That, that is all there is, he's saying, under the sun. And so in this secular life, in this life where in ancient cosmology, God was thought in some way to reside sort of up there rather than in the eternal presence of a different dimension of the Spirit, as, as we would today more commonly think. Under the sun, that phrase he uses again and again, is to imply what we would call the purely secular life. That is, life without any consideration of any religious uh, or spiritual dimension at all. That life, he is saying, to put it as boldly, as he does, we might say in modern language, it stinks. And so he's encouraging us instead to invest our time in eternity and in God, to wean us off life under the sun to life above the sun. And yet now we come this morning to a rather different tone and a different piece of writing. It is, the scholars uh, tell us, not part of Ecclesiastes' observation complexes, that is, the way he sees and observes things. Here it's sort of thrust in, a rather different kind of writing, like a man jumping back in a sauna after he has been ice swimming. It's a change of approach. Here is instead is one of those few occasions where the teacher emerges giving positive advice against the general backdrop of vanity and meaningless. It is, the scholars say, one of his instruction complexes. And he's teaching us something positive about what he wants us to be like, rather than negatively what he wants us to see life is like without a spiritual encounter with God, and so to encourage us then to seek such an encounter. And you see, particular here, he is warning what we would call the church or the religious community against acting in religion, in worship, in exactly the same way as in work under the sun. 
So it's thrust here, these seven verses, in the midst of three chapters of a context which is very like ours today, where there is a a secular questioning about the meaning of life all around us, and then comes the question, well, how are we then to do church, you see, the house of God? And Ecclesiastes, you see, is, is warning against, as it were, doing church under the sun. That is a secularized worship. That is one where there is no real fear of God, but merely a humanized rendition of popular sacraments and ceremonies, but no sense of the reality of the spiritual dimension. Now, this is by no means a full theology of worship for that. You'd have to go to the New Testament, to the Acts of the Apostles, to Paul's pastoral epistles and all that. Uh, But here we have the distinctness of what you might call transcendent worship, that is above the sun, as opposed to secular, that is uh, is under the sun worship. Now he's not saying, you know, you have to worship a certain way, as if he's one of those people who seem to feel that you have to wear black suits in church like Jesus did, you know. Um, No, he, he... He's talking about the need for awe, um, transcendence, and that kind of church is the answer to atheism. Is it really possible to worship in a secular way? Oh, yes, Ecclesiastes says. In fact, that's the great danger in such a context as ours, surrounded by all these questionings about the existence of God and all the rest. So he says, first, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. How? First, by going to listen more than to speak. Now, this is really the most essential distinction he's going to make. It's foundational to it all, and it comes first in his list of warnings. Guard your steps, he says, verse 1, when you go to the house of God. How? Well, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Now, you've got to imagine Ecclesiastes standing at the door of a synagogue or even the temple itself, watching people pile in, thoughtlessly jabbering away to themselves and each other, and then comes this instruction, don't be like that. Don't think you're coming to offer the sacrifice of fools. That is, that you yourself are going to make the worship experience happen. There's a lot of loose terminology about worship, isn't there, that betrays a secularization of our uh, Christian worship in our churches. You see, we do not and cannot do any kind of sacrifice that will lead people into the presence of God. God has already done that in Christ by His death on the cross for our sins. He has done all that is necessary. The sacrifice has been paid. So don't come with the sacrifice of fools. That is thinking, oh, this or that technique will get me closer to God. Only Jesus can get you close to God and faith in Him and what He has done. You see, how, do I, how, how then do I grow and get closer and nearer to God in my relationship with Jesus. I do it by listening. It is the distinctive of biblical worship that the Bible is heard and listened to. 
Going to the house of God to listen, what does that assume? It assumes revelation. It assumes that God has spoken, that God is not silent, that He is speaking through His Word, and therefore we are to listen. If you look at verses 4 and 5, as if by illustration, they are almost a direct quotation from the book of Deuteronomy in the Bible. The Word is being read and explained. And then he urges us to listen. He, he, he then means it in both senses of listen. We are to hear the Word, and we are to obey the Word. Samuel says the same thing when he taught to obey, or as it is literally in the Hebrew, to listen is better than sacrifice. So there is this complete change of attitude and approach in the house of God. Now, that house is not the physical building. We are God's people and the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are that temple. But that does not mean that what we do wherever we meet any less importantly transcendent. No, we're to treat the church with care. Be careful in our approach to God in our midst. That is, confess our expectation to hear from Him and by going ready to listen. And so Paul tells Timothy to prioritize preaching and teaching. Jesus began his ministry by opening up the prophet Isaiah and saying, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. And each of the letters to the churches of the Ephesians uh, bridgehead in the first few chapters of the book of Revelation in the New Testament begin, these are the words and end, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the grand mark or distinctive or characteristic of biblical as opposed to secular worship is this commitment to hearing what God has to say through His Word. That's how you spot a biblical church. It reminds me of the story of the bishop who heard a minister in his diocese give an impressive sermon and determined to mimic it. At one point, the minister had announced, the happiest days of my life were spent in the arms of another man's wife, and after a dramatic pause, had added, in the arms of my mother, after which he had the congregation in rapt attention. Well, the poor bishop announced similarly to a large congregation in his cathedral, the happiest days of my life were spent in the arms of another man's wife. And with the pause creating the effect he desired, the old boy was so pleased that he could not remember what the next line in the gag was. <laughs> so elongated the gap to increasing shock until he was finally forced to add, but I can't for the life of me remember whose. Now, of course, most Christian worship gives some reverence to the Bible, if only nominally. They have Bibles in their pews. They read from the Bible. But biblical Christian worship does not merely revere the Bible ceremonially or theoretically. It listens to the Bible practically, which means it allows time for Bible teaching. It has worshipers who come to hear Bible teaching it has worshippers who worship God during the week by putting into practice what they hear. Now, you might want to object at this point. Are we really saying that any church service that doesn't have a 40-minute exposition is sub-biblical and secularized by the shape of the world? 
Well, certainly there is no license here for verbosity. Let your words be few, it says, verse 2. Though, as we shall see, that is referring to prayer, not preaching. Still, the point remains. (laughs) Topical sermons. What does God think about sex, marriage, football, careers, etc.? Maybe non-heretical, and in a sense, all very good sometimes. It can be important to do on occasion. But to what extent are we then listening to God's Word if they are the regular diet of the church and not instead being shaped by the expectations of what the secular culture wants, letting that culture set the curriculum? Now, that doesn't mean we have to be boring or irrelevant. Far from it. And this is God we're talking about. It's God's Word. It's living and active, you know. It's a matter of attitude. You see, some of us revere the Bible, but our magisterium, as uh, historians would call it, that is our authority, is in practice the Bible and the tradition of our church. Some of us revere the Bible, but our magisterium is what is in the Bible and also what accords with modern reason. Some of us revere the Bible, but our magisterium is what is in the Bible that rings true to our own personal experience. I I know the Bible says this, but I feel that. The Bible tells us all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, 2 Timothy 3, uh, 16. Meaning, we are to see in the Bible the seminal agent of change and the magisterium, that is the authority, for all of life and church practice. For some of us, for still others, the magisterium, the authority is in practice what is in the Bible is relevant to contemporary topics. That's not relevant. I don't want to hear that. Biblical worship centers on God's Word. It's His agenda, not mine, not yours. So guard your steps. Second, guard your steps when you go to the house of God by going to do, not just say you're going to do. By going to do, not just say you're going to do. And so he writes, doesn't he? Uh, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. He's referring to prayer here and commitments made in prayer or in a prayerful Attitude. Perhaps you see he has observed and uh, now is teaching about thousands stream to the front of the old te- in the Old Testament equivalent of an altar call, uh, but he cannot see much change in their lifestyle next week or next year. So he says, uh, God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. Jesus said the same thing about prayer. Don't keep on prattling on like pra- pagans, he taught, who think they'll be heard for their many words, but say... Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, behind all of this, then, can you get the sense of it? Is this, this concept of, of God as real and here, who God is? That's what really interweaves all the threads of this passage. Worship is not something we as humans do to God. <laughs> Worship is us receiving from God that then we might be changed to live for God in practice. We are receiving. Now we commit to worship Him in practice during the week. 
So he says, don't, he's saying, don't just say it, do it. Therefore, be careful what you say. For God's going to expect all of us to follow through this week. For a dream he carries on comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. What's the point here? I think the point here is the fantasy or a fantasy of who God might be. Looking like this, I think this is what he's referring to. You've, you've got a lot of worries. What then happens? Well, you go to sleep and you dream about them. It's a normal, natural human experience. We've all had that. In the same way, he's saying, I think, this jabbering anything to God is a basic fantasy of God as perhaps some kind of divine slot machine for whom we put the penny in impressive, pious diction. And then out comes the candy blessing. It's a fantasy about God at root, this wrong under the sun, secularized worship. So he says, carrying on, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. Now, vows were a part of Old Testament worship. And Jesus, as you probably know, tells us not to swear in the sense of making vows by God's name and then not following through. He does not want us here these fake vows that sound impressive but don't actually do anything. And Paul made a vow in the New Testament and shaved his head. Uh, the point is that we shouldn't pretend. We shouldn't say we're going to do something and then not do it as if the saying is what counts. I've said I'll follow you, Jesus. Isn't that what you really want? Oh, he wants you actually to do it. So he writes, it's better that you should not vow than that you should vow not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Now, no one really knows who exactly this messenger was. Some think a temple messenger, others an angel or messenger sent by God in some way. The point is the same, however you interpret that particular word. He's saying, get the message, do it. Don't just say you're going to do it. So he carries on. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Now again, when he writes like that, you get this, this view of God, which is quite different from our tamed, secularized view of him. He is awesome. Uh, so he carries on. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. This is the under the sun kind of church. The secularized church, the vanity of religion. For when dreams increase, we're back to dreaming again. It's as if he's picturing that kind of worship service, which we've all been a part of at some point or other, where everyone goes through the motions and they, they say all the right kind of stuff and it's all very sound in a half kind of sing-song lull and everyone knows that no one really means it. And at least half the mind is on what the football score is or who's playing tonight or what we've got to do in the yard that afternoon. This kind of dreaming, he says, produces many meaningless words. Instead, stand in awe of God. But God is the one you must fear. Don't just say you're going to do it. Do it. Why? We serve an awesome God. Now, for some reason, you and I both know that religion has always been open to the meaningless verbosity of which Ecclesiastes warns. My namesake, D.L. Moody, 
um, uh, once said, some men's prayers need to be cut short at both ends and set on fire in the middle. Occasionally, unintentional typos and bloopers betray a similar streak of church verbal dysentery. One church bulletin I saw announced triumphantly the improved health of its minister. God is good, it said. And then writing underneath, Dr. Hargreaves is better. (laughs) Not to mention the stewardship offertory, I observed. Jesus paid it all. We're so like that, aren't we? Of course, God, I'll do anything. I'll give you the world, God, anything, anything. Go out on Wednesday evening to prayer meeting. Clean up the snow before church. Increase in generosity. That's not fair, God. It's too actual, too concrete, too real. God is not interested in theoretical devotion. He wants action. He wants us to do it, not just say we're going to do it. And so we have all these people out there who are turned off religion because it's too political or too commercial, too cheesy or too manipulative, many of whom, when you sit down with them over a coffee in some coffee shop or whatever, you find... They actually believe in God in some sense. And the church attempts to squeeze itself into the mold of what it thinks are the expectations of the secular society, thereby actually becoming just what people are not looking for. To the politician, it becomes political. To the salesman, it becomes commercial. To the pizza delivery guy, it becomes cheesy. all in an effort to reach out, when really to reach out, a commendable desire, of course, really to reach out, what is required is a renewed sense of who God is here, this morning, now. Stand in fear of God. Wouldn't that be the talk of the town if we left this morning with a little bit of shaking, saying to our neighbors, you know, that morning I met God. Would it not make a difference to our corporate worship experience if we really believe that actually we might, just might, right now encounter the living God? See, it's this sense of the presence of God which adds reality to any experience, whether professionally crafted or rudimentary, whether enjoyable or difficult. The Romanian pastor Richard Wormbrandt served many years in solitary confinement, and in his book of that name, Sermons in Solitary Confinement, composed while in prison uh, but written up afterwards, he said, Often at night I danced for joy in my prison cell because I was aware of the presence of God. Wouldn't that attitude towards God, that sense of the presence of Him, make all the difference? See, we're not talking about minor differences here. Bob Hope, the quintessential entertainer of yesteryear, once said, I do benefits for all religions. I'd hate to blow the hereafter on a technicality. Okay, but this is not a technicality. 
See, it all comes down to who we think God is. Is he an awesome God? Is he alive? Is he doing something today? Or is he merely a a mystification of our otherwise secular under-the-sun impulses? A communal gathering with a religious gloss, a projection of our Father needs upon the numinous. So many of the troubles of the contemporary church, it seems to me, are due to its attempts to create an under-the-sun worship experience. People smell out this sort of marketing commodity, I think. They know today, people are so sophisticated, they know when they're being sold something. Politicians are selling them so that they'll vote for them. Salesmen are selling them so they'll buy their product. Preachers are selling them so they'll join their church. And so cynicism enters in, and it's hard to get anybody to believe anything these days. Or as Kenneth Clark in his book Civilization wrote, we can destroy ourselves by cynicism as much as by bombs. If God was here, what would he say? Well, the Christian need have no doubt about that. If you are a Christian, he would say, I love you. That is the great truth, and in some ways the most scary truth of all. There was a student in the days of the Black Power Movement. He found his way through the identity challenge that that clamor created, and there are many different identity challenges today, preeminently for some sexuality. That student of the Black Power Movement had a poster on his wall which read, I'm black and I'm okay because God don't make junk. Hmm. When you know that God loves you, you no longer feel like junk. A group of teenagers had discovered that a boy among them was adopted, and they were teasing him about it. After a while, he turned to them and said, all right, yes, of course I am adopted, but all I know is my parents chose me, but yours couldn't help having you. Every Christian can say the same thing. God chose me. He has picked me out and made me His, and He loves me. God would also say this, I chose you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last John chapter 15, verse 16. We are to listen to what God has to say. We are to do, not just say we're going to do. Christianity is not a spectator sport. By listening, by making a commitment that you follow through, you are getting down and dirty on the field in the huddle, and contributing to the next play. Who knows? Maybe it'll be a touchdown. Let's pray together. Let's have a moment of silence.
as we stand in awe of God. God is the one you must fear. He made everything. He knows everything. He is the Alpha and Omega. There's nothing we can hide from Him. He knit us together in our mother's womb. He knows our name. He is here. The Lord is among us. He is everywhere, omnipresent. But when his people gather together and open up his word, the sword of the Spirit, that is the word of God, Ephesians six, seventeen, does its work. He is here and he is speaking through his word. Father, would you help us by your spirit to have listening hearts? Father, would you help us to hear the word of your love? some ways the most scary truth of all. That the God of all gave his son that the sacrifice would be paid that while we were still sinners Christ died for us. Father, help us to hear that word and to be changed by it. Father, I pray that we would go out knowing that this morning we met with God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.